From NPR News in New York, this is the Bryant Park Project. Overlooking historic Bryant Park in Midtown Manhattan, live from the NPR studios, this is the Bryant Park Project from NPR News. News, information, and back in the saddle for a week. I'm Allison Stewart. It's Monday, July 21st, 2008, and was it something I said? I mean, really. Something I said? People are packing their boxes and stuff? I'm not really sure what's going on. I've been gone for three months. Everybody, I missed you so much. We're back here for one final week, perhaps one of the weirdest ends to a maternity leave ever. I'm going to ask you to be gentle with me during the course of this morning and this week because I've only been talking to a small person about 111, 11 pounds. Of course, that's baby Isaac, who, uh, you know what? I think through the entire course of the show, I was with child. Isaac is a part of the BPP team. Uh, not here this morning, but uh, we have a lot of folks who are going to help me out. Editor Trisha on the mic. Hello. Hello. So uh, anything changed since I was gone? Anything new? Um, I don't know if you heard. Yeah. Uh, this is our last week. Right. Yeah. That right. change. That's a big change. That's a big change, but we're going to have a good week. It's a good week. We're going to have a good week. We're going to have fun. We're going to have, we're going to enjoy each other. We're going to give some news. We're going to have some good stories. So kumbaya. To, yeah, it's going to be, uh, we're going to go out with a bang. Drum circles by the end? Um, no. All right. What we will have is Jim Vandehei from Politico.com on the show for our weekly politics roundup. Of course, Barack Obama in Afghanistan. And the speculation about who is going to fill the number two spot on both tickets. Golf, football, baseball. Just a few of the things on Bill Wolf's radar over the weekend. I can attest to that. He was in front of a 72-inch TV at one point. Uh, the BPP sports analyst Bill Wolf gives us our final roundup of weekend sports. And today, we do begin a week-long series, the BPP Stages of Grief. We invite you to work through the mental anguish of losing your favorite multi-platform news program through song. The first stage, of course, is denial, and it's John River in Egypt. We'll have that coming up with Laura Conaway. Politics in a few, but first, let's get to some of today's headlines with the BPP's Mark Garrison. I made it. Phew. This is NPR. Thank you, Allison. Uh, Barack Obama is in Iraq today. The high-profile visit is his first to Iraq since launching his presidential campaign. He's meeting with top American commanders and Iraqi leaders, among them Iraqi Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki. Al-Maliki drew attention for comments appearing to endorse Obama's 16-month troop pullout timetable. His office said he was misunderstood and he's not taking sides in the presidential race. The Iraq trip follows Obama's weekend visit to Afghanistan. The first U.S. military war crimes trial since World War War II opens today. Salim Hamdan will be the first to stand trial in a military tribunal at Guantanamo Bay. First up, jury selection from a pool of American military officers. Hamdan faces life in prison on conspiracy charges. The trial should last about three weeks. Tropical Storm Dolly is headed for Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. NPR's Jason Bobian has more from Mexico City. Dolly dumped heavy rains from Belize to Cancun as it pushed towards the Yucatan Peninsula. The storm also prompted evacuations of some low-lying 
outlying areas in eastern Mexico. Local officials said the evacuations were preventative measures and that so far there hasn't been significant damage from Dolly. The Yucatan and particularly the resort town of Cancun were battered by Hurricane Wilma in 2005. Dolly is expected to dump up to 10 inches of rain before moving out over the Gulf of Mexico. Forecasters say Dolly could strengthen over the next two days. By Tuesday, she's expected to be moving across the southwestern Gulf and towards the Mexican mainland. NPR's Jason Bobian reporting from Mexico City. Marvel vs. DC, it's an old rivalry fought from comic book stores to the big screen, and now a new champion. Starting tonight, people will die. I'm the man of my word. <laughs> that is Heath Ledger playing the Joker. The Dark Knight broke a box office record this weekend. It took in more than $155 million. That is the largest weekend opening ever. DC character Batman stole the title from Marvel's Spider-Man. Spider-Man 3 had the record for its May 2007 opening. And that is your news for now. Plenty more online at NPR.org. This is NPR. The two presidential candidates, presumptive presidential candidates, we should say, differ in obvious ways, policies, style, and this weekend in their desire for press attention. On one hand, the young Midwestern senator making a trip and inviting Katie, Charlie, and Brian along. That would be Cork, Gibson, and Williams, the evening news anchors. And on the other hand, the older Southwestern senator booting a high-profile advisor on a Friday night in the summer after all the political journalists have left D.C. for the Maryland shore. But the folks at Politico.com never rest, which is why we have had the great pleasure since the piloting phase of this program to work with them. Joining us one last time is Jim Vandehei, the executive editor of Politico.com. Hi, Jim. It's a weepy Jim Van de Heide. Oh, thanks. Well, there's actually talk that they're going to suspend the campaign in protest. <laughs> Keep that talk up. Keep that talk up. Hey, Senator Obama, he's out on what I've been calling just basically field trip. On Thursday, he's going to go to Berlin to meet with Angela Merkel, the chancellor. Obama's going to meet with Ehud Olmert in Israel. That the two big meetings that really could have some sort of impact on his campaign are with President Karzai in Afghanistan and Iraqi Prime Minister Maliki. Now, can you lay out the pros of these two meetings for him and then how he might misstep? Wait, I mean, the stakes for this trip are unbelievably huge. I mean, the fact that a, sort of a foreign trip in the summer when most people aren't even paying attention to the campaign means as much, I think, says so much about Barack Obama. I think in his mind, he can really close the deal with independent voters and even a lot of Republicans if he can just prove that he can be strong on the national stage, that he understands foreign policy and he doesn't carry the baggage that a lot of voters feel some Democrats do when it comes to uh, national security and fighting terrorism. If he can go into all of these meetings, look like a statesman, not do anything to sort of embarrass himself for the campaign, and show that he can think pretty smartly and sophisticated about uh, international issues. This will be a huge triumph for him. I really, I really do think that. The McCain uh, campaign certainly fears that. Now, the danger is, is that he goes too far and that this starts to look like a taxpayer-funded uh, field trip, like you called it, or F- just a PR stunt yeah. on his part. I think so far that hasn't happened. But, man, every single camera from the United States to overseas is trained on this guy for five days. So everything he does is going to be amplified for better or worse. Could he have made this trip in a press blackout, do you think? 
Oh, I don't know. I mean, in some ways he was forced, uh, I think, to do this. And, and maybe uh, maybe the McCain campaign will come back to regret this. Remember, it was uh, the McCain campaign and Lindsey Graham that put so much pressure on him saying, hey, he's never been to Iraq. He's got to, mm. you know, how can he sit here and make these proclamations about uh, the conditions on the ground when he doesn't go there? Well, he called their bluff, and now he's he's going there, and he doesn't have a, a press contingent with him uh, in Iraq, but obviously knows that he's going to get a heck of a lot of coverage uh, for it. But you know, this is a candidate who spends uh, much more time than most candidates, sort of thinking about the words that he uses in speeches and the stagecraft at which he's presented. And I think that my guess is they put a lot, a lot of smart thought into making sure that each and every stop he gets maximum PR pop. Now, he's on the trip with Jack Reed from Rhode Island and Republican Senator Chuck Hagel. And in the VP pick parlor game, Hagel is a name that's floated as an Obama running mate. Is that just a kind of one of those for fun dream ticket things? Or is there any veracity to this to this happening? Oh, I don't think that they, I don't think that's a serious uh chance just uh, of him getting the <laughs> ticket. You know, get the, uh, what Obama wants is just somebody who's not going to be a distraction and somebody who uh, he feels really could be president uh, if, if he were, you know, God forbid something happened to him and he couldn't serve in office. And I, so I think he'll probably go with a safer pick, like either somebody who has some national security experience who is uh, who's not that controversial, maybe like an Evan Bayh uh, from Indiana, maybe uh, Jack Reed, who's already took says he doesn't want the job, but you know, of course would take it if offered, or you know someone who can really help him in a key state. I still think that uh, Governor Kane here in Virginia uh, mm. is, in some people's minds, like the ideal pick, because he really could help deliver a key state to Obama. And if Obama can win Virginia, he probably can win the election. So crossing over of party lines, for example, Joe Lieberman has been floated as the the independent slash Democratic answer to Chuck Hagel. Would Joe Lieberman ever be on a McCain ticket? Or again, is this just parlor games of, wow, wouldn't it be cool if people crossed party lines? I think there's a more realistic chance that you'd see Lieberman on a McCain ticket than Hagel on a Obama ticket, and mostly because the chemistry between the two men is crystal clear. I mean, this is one of the... Uh, uh, most aggressive advocates for John McCain is Joe Lieberman. It's someone who's been vetted. It's someone who's been through the process. Uh, it's someone who probably helps him, certainly on the national security front and in, in dealing with uh, Middle East issues. The problem is it would obviously turn off a lot of Republicans and, and amplify fears they already have about McCain, about whether he's squishy and whether he's truly sort of, quote-unquote, one of them. Yeah. Uh, there seems to be a lot, a lot of talk uh, around McCain about Romney and even the potential that this happens sooner rather than later, uh, Romney, what he would bring to the ticket, uh, or, you know, a forceful advocate of McCain, somebody who's well-versed on the economy and someone who can raise a tremendous amount of money. The downside is I don't think the two men like each other. Uh, they certainly didn't during the campaign, and there's no evidence to suggest that they've had some uh, sort of healing session since. We're talking to Jim Vandehei, executive editor of Politico.com. Now, John McCain's campaign, they took a play from the Bill Clinton handbook on burying a story. Friday afternoon, his chief economic advisor, Phil Graham, stepped down. He of the mental recession comment, we're all whiners for saying things are going badly. Now, was this a smart move for McCain? Did Graham just have too much baggage going on? Aside from this comment, some other, you know, you've read the blog, some of the other issues right. with associated with Mr. Graham? Uh, I think Graham certainly was becoming a huge distraction, uh, and I thought it was really captured when he made those uh, comments about the nation being a nation of whiners when it comes to the economy. Uh, that's 
certainly not the image that McCain wants to project. McCain's trying very hard to, to, to show that he's sympathetic and empathetic with the struggles that many Americans are going through. The economy is such a, a weak spot right now for John McCain. He's got to figure out a way to articulate an economic vision that resonates with Americans. In 2000, it was fine uh, to say, hey, I'm just going to cut pork barrel spending. You know, people were very concerned about sky-high government spending, especially wasteful spending, and it, it did have some resonance. It doesn't resonate as well anymore because people are struggling. People are losing jobs. You see the unemployment rate tick up slowly. Uh, people are having a hard time making enough money to keep up with the surge in prices, particularly with gasoline. And he's got to figure out a way to come up with an economic theory that really is broadly appealing. And I think that when he's you know, not able to articulate that and then also having to defend himself against the ties that people like Phil Graham and his campaign have to, you know, companies that have had troubles or comments that are certainly explosive that only uh, amplifies his troubles. Barack Obama doing a little distancing himself. The campaign disinvited former Georgia senator and current registered lobbyist Max Cleland from an Atlanta fundraising event back on July 8th. Now, is this meaningful gesture, a technicality? And Frankly, couldn't it get lonely at these events if you're going to keep anybody attached to a lobbying firm out? Uh, it really is. I mean, basically everybody, uh, most people who've left politics uh, go into the, the lobbying world, and it really creates a, a pretty high standard that Obama's going to be forced to met at each and every step when you're saying you're not going to have a lobbyist here or a lobbyist there. You, uh, the reporters are going to simply look to make sure that you're being true to that principle at each and every step, you know. He, now he's he's sort of holding himself to that standard. I think that's probably a good thing. The question will be if he were to win uh, win the election. He's talked about you know having limits on the number of lobbyists uh, in in government. Well, it sounds all well and good, but a lot of people who are well versed in policy and how government operates actually are lobbyists and aren't necessarily uh, criminals. There could be some tumbleweeds down halls if he keeps that up. Uh, Jim, before we let you go, first of all, we want to thank you for joining us on these Mondays for this almost the better part of a year. We really appreciate it. Your analysis has been great. Your love of the Packers, we admire. Um, and as we leave our audience, and this is your last appearance on our show, I want you to tell our audience one thing you think that they really should keep in mind over the next 106 days until the election so they really can make an informed choice. Uh, well, first off, uh, it's been a, a pleasure. I mean, I really do. I love doing this show. You guys are a lot of fun, and we always have enough time to actually talk pretty seriously, I think, about issues that do matter a lot. And I think the thing I'd really look for, because I, I, I do think this election uh, is, is Barack Obama's to lose just because of the, the political environment right now. The thing is is to really uh, to look closely at Obama and try to figure out like what really motivates this guy. What are the ideas that he truly believes in? It's clear he's a very... Uh, He's a great uh, speech giver. He's uh, clearly a, a very good strategizer. It's not crystal clear to me, like, what are the core values that undoubtedly would sort of echo through uh, an Obama administration, and how would that be reflected in policies that, that he sort of really believes in? At this point uh, in, the, in the campaign in 2000, you sort of knew if George Bush won in the first year, he's going to do something on education, he's going to do something on faith-based initiative, and he's going to cut taxes. It's still not crystal clear to me what the first year of an Obama administration would look like, and that always gives you a pretty good indication of what would animate a, a candidate once he uh, is elected to office. So I think that's an important thing to look for. And then on the McCain side is to figure out, does he really have any passion for issues beyond national security? It's clear that that's what motivates this man. He cares a lot about honor, cares a lot about ideals, 
But I think the next president is going to have a lot on their hands, not just having to deal with Afghanistan and Iraq, but dealing with the fallout of the mortgage crisis, probably an economy that will still be in turmoil. We need to figure out what is it that this guy actually truly believes in on the economic side, and how would that be reflected in policies? Jim Van High, co-founder and executive editor of Politico.com and trusted friend of the Bryant Park Project. Thanks, Jim. All right. Good luck to all of you. Take care. Next up on the BPP, sports with the best sports guy in the whole world, in my opinion. And it might be a little jaded or tainted, I should say, because he is my husband. That is Bill Wolf, the BPP sports analyst. This is the Bryant Park Project from NPR News. Thank you for listening to the Bryant Park Project from NPRU News. Yeah, that's you, Woody, I'm talking to, who works at the Mac store in Soho. Came up to me. Faithful listener, he and his girlfriend. So good morning, Woody. Good morning, Woody. And Hi, girlfriend. Woody. They listen online at npr.org slash Park. Time for something that I've missed. I've missed my stroll. I've missed my wandering. I've missed my sashaying through the day's headlines. Well, they're not really the headlines. They're more like the... Back lines. <laughs> um, it's the Ramble. And I am not alone. No. Matt Martinez, nice to see you. Oh, good to see you, Allison. And I like your top. It's very nice. Thank you. Nicole Miller. Very nice. <laughs> okay. radio to just say, I like your top. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, Olympics. Goodbye, cars. That's our first story in the Ramble. There's some new re- traffic restrictions that went into place in Beijing today to... S- you know, clean up pollution to stop pollution, basically. You know why? Because athletes need to breathe. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's it's very, very people. important. There are 3.3 million cars in Beijing alone, and the regulations that began say that uh, today drivers with even number plates have to take public transportation, and uh, employees uh, employers are also. have also been asked to stagger work schedules and uh, public institutions are opening an hour later than normal and they say that all of these traffic calming measures uh, could still not work because unpredictable winds during the Olympics could blow pollution into Beijing from other provinces and the lack of wind, common, very common in August, could cause a buildup of, of local pollution. Wait, so, so the wind's a problem and no wind's a problem? Yes, yeah, it's basically a big problem. It's a no <laughs> wind wind. But there is more, there is more to this story. Uh, two new subway lines and an airport rail link were opened over the weekend in Beijing. Uh, the protected, uh, projected number of passengers on the three routes is expected to reach 1.1 million daily during the Olympics next month. It's just amazing measures they're going through to make sure that the pollution is cut down in Beijing. Do you think any of these solutions would last past the Olympics? Probably not. No. I'll be watching on my couch in some air conditioning in New York City. Mm -hmm. Um, You know there's going to be a big shakeup in late night TV starting next year. Conan O'Brien is going to take over for Jay Leno and Jay Leno is going somewhere in ABC. We don't know. Now who's going to replace Conan O'Brien? There was a big battle for this between would it be Carson Daly would it be BJ Novak it turns out it's going to be Jimmy Fallon right of Saturday Night Live and not too many good movies fame um, <laughs> so they're gonna you know do something that's 
kind of smart, Lauren Michaels of SNL. Um, he's going to launch an online edition of the Jimmy Fallon version of Late Night. They're going to be little 10-minute sort of warm-up shows so that Jimmy Fallon can kind of find his groove, find his sea legs. So remember the early uh, episodes of Conan? Unwatchable. Yeah, they were really bad. Yeah. They were really, really he was bad. was so nervous. Exactly. So they're going to do it on the web for 10 minutes. They're going to do it at 1230 at night, like when the show will actually be on. And Lauren says it'll be a time to for Jimmy to express more freedom. And so wait, like a show on the internet. Really? Yeah. Wow. Weird. Getting a following before That's going to the television. Great idea. Is it going to be live? Is it going to be streamed live? Uh, yeah, live at twelve thirty. I believe that's the way it's going to go. Mm. It's doomed. Mm-hmm. What a good idea. Yeah, yeah. it's doomed. <laughs> Lauren Michaels, he doesn't know what he's doing ever. Right? Okay. All right. So I have a story. Uh, I love these kind of stories. It's about you know treasure in your trash. So this is a story in New York. Uh, a twenty thousand dollar pair of diamond earrings were lost in the garbage. It was Staten Island jeweler uh, lost them. Uh, they went to a landfill and sorted through all a smelly heap of garbage. And found them. Wow. They were in a jar of cleaning solution. A worker at the jewelry store had accidentally <laughs> thrown the earrings away. I mean, it's that poor story. worker. So uh, they went They went to the Fresh Kills landfill. I don't know how this stuff went to Fresh Kills. I thought Fresh Kills had been closed a long time ago. So I don't know if these have been in the garbage that long or <laughs> for some reason they got trucked to Fresh Kills. I don't know. But anyway, they had to dig through the trash. and they But they found their earrings. And that never happens. But $20,000 earrings. I mean, you could probably spot those from space. Can I tell you those something? Those things though? must be huge. My husband lost his wedding ring once in the Delaware River. Oh, my God. And he was like, oh, God, I lost my wedding ring. What are we going to do? And I was like, oh, I'll help you find it. And I looked down and I found it. It was like, I just found it. Maybe it was a miracle. Some... Wow. So they should have hired me. Well, was it, on, need the, a job. Was it on the banks of the Delaware? No, no, it was yeah. in the water. It was in the water. Trisha has superpowers. You didn't know about that? Uh, yeah. I, was just like, I was like, we're never going to find it. Don't worry, honey. Don't worry. Oh, look, right there. And I picked it up. It's magic. Magic. Now you have to stay married to me. <laughs> there might be other reasons you'd like to do that, too. I don't think so. Cassie. Move on. I don't know. <laughs> I might uh, hey, the World Series, buy now, pray later. An optimistic Cubs fan He is going to lock up postseason tickets. But they might not ever exist. Any Cubs fan, apparently there's this place called First Dibs, with a Z, dot com. First Dibs. It's a Chicago-based company, formerly known as Ticket Reserve. You can purchase or reserve tickets from a seller, a season ticket holder, or someone who has guaranteed access to postseason tickets. But obviously, Cubs not in the World Series yet. Right. Not likely to be. I'm sorry. Right. So you spend the money now. Spend the money now. Cross your fingers. Fingers. But you don't get the money back. That's the issue. If they fail to reach the World Series, uh, you don't get your money back. And First Dibs gets a 17%. But I can see two possible unhappy endings for this. So if you are a Cubs season ticket holder. Yes. And you don't believe in your Cubs. So then you, you give away the, the right to buy your tickets. Yes. And then they get to the World Series. How bad will you feel? Pretty bad. Yeah. Pretty mm. bad. So um, so are we just saying that's a bad idea? Is that what I decided know. on this room right here? Somebody. Somebody's making money. Oh, those are the stories that are in the ramble. If you'd like further information, go to our website. We'll link on through at npr.org slash Bryant Park. Thanks, you guys. You're welcome. You're welcome. Now, the last time I saw Greg Norman's name in the press, I was looking at the cover of People magazine, and it said, Greg Norman marries Chris Everett. 
Or I know that he sells some polo shirts that have little sharks on them. And I seem to remember that he was with President Clinton when Clinton was partying or visiting him and broke his leg. Remember that? All that's ancient history after this weekend at the Royal Brookdale Golf College in South Southampton, England? Mm, Southport, England. That's right. Southport, England. When Norman was doing something that led my husband to literally run back and forth in and out of the TV room to tell me about it. Here's Greg Norman in his own words. It's NFL Man of the Year, Jason Taylor and his partner, Oedipus Levinsko. That is not the right clip. Well, the big story is that Greg Norman was hosting Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> that would be... BBP sports analyst, my wow. husband. Bill that's Wolf. a story. That's a that story. Is a story. How hey, are welcome you? Back from, welcome back from maternity leave. How was it? <laughs> it was good. You were there. Oh, you right. You know how it was. Oh, yes. In fact, you are correct. <laughs> so, we were, so we're out at a friend's house this weekend who's also a, a sports guy, boxing oh, yeah. analyst, Max Kellerman. Indeed. And you were watching golf. Which Max in, Kellerman hates. In, in, yeah, he says it. So, what does he say? Uh, he says when golfers retire, they do what everybody else does. They golf. So you're watching Greg Norman, and you keep running in and out of the room talking about what's going on. Now, explain to people woke ba- why woke it's a ch- the baby. <laughs> well, yeah, you did. You woke the baby up talking about Greg Norman. Nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's 53. He yep. starts winning the British Open. Was he expected to play extraordinary golf at this tournament? No, he was. He hasn't played extraordinary golf in ten years. Uh, his career, as you and I were talking about all weekend, was marked by two things: one, great success. He was perceived to be the best player in the world, kind of mid to late eighties through the mid nineties, and made an unreal pile of cash and has a helicopter and a jet and a sixteen yachts and a vineyard and stuff like that. But the second mark of his career was tremendous biblical levels of disappointment when he was perceived to have choked at the big moment over and over and over, like a half a dozen times, he would lead the big tournament going into the last day and lose it, most memorably in 1996 when he blew a six-stroke lead, which is like in basketball a 25-point lead, a huge lead in the Masters. So Norman was known as a great, great, successful, uh, great player, a successful businessman, but a choker. But he was done, finished, 53, and hadn't, really been heard from since about 1998 and as you said he led the British Open one of the four majors and some say the most prestigious going into the day Sunday he had a two-stroke lead over Padraig Paddy Harrington so it was shocking it was the story of the sports weekend that Greg Norman was ahead at the British Open couldn't believe it let me dive in here can you explain what's so special about the British Open as compared to as compared to other golf tournaments first of all it's the oldest of the major tournaments it, and second, it, you play Lynx golf. In, rather than having these beautifully groomed courses that you see all over the United States uh, with hills and uh, lakes and things like that, uh, little obstacle courses for golfers, these are uh, shore courses, beachside courses, with, uh, where the most uh, telling difference course to course is the weather. The wind blows 40 miles an hour. That makes it incredibly difficult to play golf. So it's Lynx golf, the old original kind of golf. And in uh, the United Kingdom is where they invented golf. So the British Open is uh, special because it's the oldest, because it comes from England and Scotland where they invented the game, and because the, the way you play is so different from how you play the rest of the year here in North America. Now we should point out that Greg Moore- Norman did not win 
the British Open. Patty oh, yeah, Harrington won it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But my question is, <laughs> did he choke? Is that why he didn't win? Or did, was it just a matter of the greatest players in the world were on this course and I he, think just it's was, more... he just lost? I think it's more the latter than the former. I think P- Patty Harrington was the defending champion. He's an excellent, excellent player. Um, Norman did not play particularly well, but neither did anybody else. So um, I think the objective view is he simply lost. He, he didn't miss the big shot at the very end. However, he did play. Uh, it was perceived that he played too aggressively, that had he played more conservatively, he might, he might not have taken as many risks, and his score might have been better. So if you want to be cruel to Greg Norman, if you are a guy who loves to take shots at people and has tremendous schadenfreude and loves the completion of a good, nasty, mean-spirited story, you can say Greg Norman choked. I think the objective reality is, you know, he's 53, and he got tired, and he got beat by an excellent player who plays beautifully on Lynx courses. So I would say he didn't choke, but... I'll bet you there's some mileage gotten by sports blabbermouths today talking about the fact that he did. We're talking to B- Bill Wolf, the BPP sports analyst, and uh, my husband as well. Yes, in fact. Uh, we came home last night, of course, flipped on ESPN News in yep. big TV in the living yeah, I, room. I hate it when you do that. <laughs> and the first thing we saw, breaking news on ESPN. This qualifies as breaking news <laughs> yeah. that uh, Jason Taylor of the Miami Dolphins was going to leave. Now, most people probably think Jason Taylor I've heard that name before but maybe not for sports during his time off he took off time um, to compete on Dancing with the Stars shall we listen it's NFL man of the year Jason Taylor and his partner Oedipus Levinska last week Jason proved to the judges that tough guys can dance I thought the foxtrot was tough, but I do not like the momo. you got to wear a heel on your shoe, and it's fast. Okay, so that is was what... Was his partner named Oedipus? Is that what I... <laughs> that's, un... that's unbelievable. That's breaking news. <laughs> it is Edita. Is his oh, partner. oh, 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 my bad. And she's lovely. Um, sure. So he was busy doing this instead of training with his team. Now, was that just a big signal to his team? Like, I do not want to play with you anymore. I want to go to another team. I think it had to be. Not as big a signal as when he asked to be traded. Uh, He wanted out of there. The Miami Dolphins, his team, uh, are terrible, uh, and they are really starting from uh, square one trying to get to be better. And he does. he's toward the end of his career. He's been playing 11 years. He's 32 years old, which in football is old. Um, So he wants to go try to play for a winning team, and he made that clear to the Dolphins. Uh, And then going missing all of the Dolphins' off-season training, with a new administration there in Miami, uh, to go on dances with this. Now, if you'd gone on Survivor, you could make an argument. But dances <laughs> with the star, dancing with the stars, you don't go on dancing with the stars instead of going to you know off-season training camp. It was a loud, clear symbol uh, that he really wasn't interested in being a Miami Dolphins, a Dolphin. And Bill Parcells, you, you probably know Bill Parcells. He was the coach of the Giants and of the Patriots and of the Cowboys, a famous famous tough guy, uh, wasn't having any of it, and they dealt him to Washington, the Redskins, for a second-round draft pick and a sixth-round draft pick, which, for a guy who is always in the Pro Bowl and considered to be, was the defensive player of the year in 2006, isn't a, a huge haul for Miami. They just wanted Jason Taylor out of town. All right, and finally, let's talk baseball. There was let's much baseball watching going on over the course of this weekend, and I, I'm still not clear on something. Yeah. 
who's ahead at this point? I've listened to so much arguing between you and your friends about what team you like. I want to actually know who's ahead. Who's in okay. first place? Okay. Uh, it's still a little muddy. In the National League, the team with the best record in the league is the Chicago Cubs, so that those folks who are putting <gasps> down tickets. futures on Cubs World Series tickets have reason to do so. So the Cubs are in first place in their division, and they have the best record in the league. In uh, the Eastern Division, it's the Mets. The New York Mets and the Philadelphia Phillies are tied for first. The Mets have sort of been revived. They were thought to be uh, finished by their uh, melodramatic fan base, but they really never were, so they're back. And in the Western Division of the National League, it's the Arizona Diamondbacks and the L.A. Dodgers, and it's interesting only that neither one of them has a winning record, but the division is so lame that having a losing record qualifies you to have first place. In the American League... You have the Chicago White Sox are ahead in the Central Division by a little bit over the Minnesota Twins. I believe the Tan... No, I'll say the Boston Red Sox are in first place in the Eastern Division, tangled right up close to the Tampa Bay Rays, whom we discussed on the BPP. And right behind them, in the rear view, objects in mirror are closer than they appear, the dreaded New York Yankees. <laughs> and in the American League Western Division is the team that has the best record in all the American, maybe the best record in baseball, is the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, otherwise known as the Anaheim Angels and really previously known as the California Angels. And that's who's ahead. So there, there are eight or nine teams who, are, who could sort of say they're ahead. Yet I know that what you wanted to discuss for your final BPP sports segment was... yes. The uh, sports soul of your child, Isaac. The battle Stewart for Wolf. Isaac's soul, which has begun, <laughs> because um, around Uncle Max and all yeah. the people he's going to likely grow up with in New York, Isaac could be a Yankees fan very easily. Yes, and which is to call it troubling is understating it. You as a St. Louis Cardinals fan. Yeah, global warming is troubling. This, this is something more. Um, he might be a Yankees fan. He lives in New York. What if he turns out to be a Mets fan? What does that say about the child if instead of choosing the winning local team, the Yankees, the team that expects to win, the team that when it's broken, they just pay a lot of money to fix it, and everybody expects to win, and they have a history of triumph and glory, what if instead he chooses the Mets, who have whose whole rap is that they lose, the whole... The reason people root for them is that it's unlikely that they're going to win. What does it say about him, and how has his life changed if he is a Yankee fan versus being a Mets fan or vice versa? And all of that said, what do I do, having spent the last 42 solid years loathing the Mets and the Yankees and loving the St. Louis Cardinals, also known as God's team, where I come from, <laughs> Which would be St. Louis, I suppose. What, what do I do? Uh, do I try to make him a Cardinal fan? Does he just resent me? Dad, you don't understand, man. Do I get that kind of lip out of him if I try to make him a Cardinals fan? Do I let nature take its, its course? And what will nature's course be? So I, we, we're beginning, darling, a journey uh, of great peril for this child, uh, which baseball team he'll root for, and... Um, I don't get to post on your blog, which, by the way, is outstanding. The blog is unbelievable. Laura Conaway is such a star. Uh, were I to post, I would say, what sort of fan should my son be and what will the impact of his choice be on his life? This is to be continued. Indeed. In our lifetime. I can't wait. Bill Wolf, we thank you so much for being part of the show. I'm not like you had a big choice because you have to... 
listen to me all the time. But <laughs> you've been a joy. Oh, man, it's been my joy. What a crew. What a group. I love the BPP. I will always love the BPP. What a group of people and what a host. I'll tell you, you're the most. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. See you later. All right, baby. Laura Conaway, our web editor, has wandered into the studio with a piece of paper in front of her. Hi, Laura. Hi, how you doing? Welcome back. Thank you. Um, I just want to share with you guys a couple of comments that came in um, on the blog. They're attached to the post we did when, when the news first broke that our show was being canceled in the New York Times. Um, this person writes, I have severe PTSD. My 16-year-old son died suddenly in his bedroom last spring. I was afraid to stay oh. home alone during the day. And had screaming panic attacks until I found and started to listen to the Bryant Park Project. And it's from this woman named Debbie. She just goes on to say that she really likes the show. And sometimes, you know, you hear from people like that out there and you think, you know, God. Yeah. There's another one. This guy wrote, Patrick O'Brien wrote, I may never get over this. I have ALS, which means I'm dying, which also means I'm becoming paralyzed. Anyway, in order to use the computer, I'm forced to click on a contraption, which by morning comes loose. And for hours, I struggle to click on BPP before my nurse arrives. I love you, BPP. Patrick O'Brien, we love you. Thank you for hitting that button. Well, I thank you for sharing all of that. And one thing we do want to say is that the we will be f- frozen in time. It'll be a little BPP museum. The blog is still going to exist in the world. It may not be active. It may be a bit of a ghost blog, but you can still visit it. It'll still be there. It should still be there. This is what I'm being told, and that's what we're going to try to do. All right. Well, we're going to hold folks to that. And Laura Conaway, you're going to come back to help people who are having a little bit of a hard time working through this. Yeah, you can share my hard time. Our show. Yeah. With some music. With some music. Stay with us here at the Bryant Park Project from NPR News. Hey, welcome back to the Bryant Park Project from NPR News. We are on digital FM, Sirius, satellite radio, and online at npr.org slash Park. I'm Allison Stewart, and coming up, we're in denial. But first, we'll get the latest news headlines from the BPP's Mark Garrison. This is NPR. Thank you, Allison. Many dead and injured in a pair of bus explosions in southwestern China. NPR's Louisa Lim has more from Shanghai. These bus blasts less than three weeks before the Olympics will heighten tension in China. Xinhua News Agency says two people died and 14 were injured during early morning explosions on two buses in the southwestern city of Kunming. It blamed the blasts on sabotage. Police have started roadside checks to try to find the people responsible. Some news websites are reporting explosions on a third bus in Kunming, but this is unconfirmed. The news comes just two days after police opened fire and killed two farmers in Yunnan province in a dispute between a rubber company and farmers. These mounting reports of unrest in the run-up to the Olympics are contributing to ever tighter security measures in Beijing. 
NPR's Louisa Lim reporting from Shanghai. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice says Iran gave the U.S. and other nations the runaround in weekend talks on its nuclear program. Iran has two weeks to respond to an offer. It would get a package of incentives if it stops enriching uranium. Iran has declined to stop in the past. It claims the enrichment is for energy, not weapons. In Colombia, hundreds of thousands hit the streets to protest their target, the rebel group FARC. NPR's Juan Ferrero has the story from Bogota. They blew whistles, waved flags, and shouted by the hundreds of thousands. On Colombia's Independence Day, Colombians marched in hundreds of cities and towns. Here in Bogota and Medellin, and as far away as Paris, New York, and Beijing, the objective was to send an unmistakable message to the FARC that they're a retrograde group that must stop kidnapping. The rebels hold nearly 700 hostages in the country's vast outback. The FARC had hoped to propel itself onto the world stage by releasing some of those hostages earlier this year, but the liberations only hardened Colombians' resolve against the group. Now that 15 hostages were recently rescued, people here are more committed than ever to pressuring the rebels. NPR's Juan Ferrero reporting from Bogota, and that is your news for now. More online at npr.org. This is NPR. Today we begin a week-long series. Now I know what you're thinking. That's cheeky of them to start a series, considering. Well, it is a special series, an homage to the work of Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She is the groundbreaking psychiatrist who fashioned the five stages of grief: denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. The phases many experience who are dealing with some kind of a loss. And well, we know it well. And many of our listeners have told us. They're kind of bumming out too, so collectively we want to work through this with a mashup of the five stages of grief with the BPP feature, the best song in the world today. So on this Monday we will start with denial, as presented by Bryant Park Project web editor Laura Conaway. Back in the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, this American diver, it was a platform diver up at 10 meters, just came tumbling down out of the sky. This guy Matt Scoggin, he went to do a a flip, a backflip, a dive that involved jumping off backwards and rotating around. And he was supposed to grab both of his knees and squeeze his body into this little ball in order to make the rotation work. And he was able to grab his right knee with his right hand, but his left hand just slipped right off, and it caused his form to just completely fall apart. And he landed flat on his back in the water. And when you do this when you're a diver, you know you can end up in the hospital. You could potentially die. It's a very serious thing. And so his coach and the medical people came running toward the pool, trying to get him out. And he swam to the edge and jumped out. And they were all there waiting for him. And instead of going to them, he took off running down the side of the pool. He just took off sprinting. And he said later that what he was trying to do was run away from the pain. Ever since I found out that they were canceling the Bryant Park project, that's a little bit how I have felt. Like if I stand in one place too long, it'll hurt more than I can stand. And I decided right after the announcement that I would try to spend the couple of weeks that we had left just giving love because I want people associated with the Bryant Park project to know how much I love them. Whether it's people who work in here, because you guys are just the beans, you're wonderful, wonderful people. Or whether it's people out there who are listening to the show, because you also are wonderful people, and my role here has called for me as the web editor to connect with you, and I want you to know that that's real for me, and that letting go of that is hard. And I think that 
For a number of reasons, I've been kind of stuck in the stage of grief that they call denial, which unfortunately is square one. (laughs) So I have a little ways to go. Um, I had always thought of denial as meaning um, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. But I do very much believe that the Bryant Park Project has been canceled by NPR. And what I've come to understand now about denial is that it also means when you say, I can't believe it. And that's kind of where I am. I look at the show and the community around the show and the, the genius that goes into it and the magic that comes out of it. And I think, you know, of it ending and I think I can't believe it. So I want to try to play a song for that. The particular song that I go to talks a lot about having a little circle of friends who will always be together. And I think, you know, that's pretty clear. That's, you know, the Bryant Park Project community inside and outside. Then it has a bunch of nonsense words. And then it says a denial, a denial, a denial. When the person who sings the song sings it, he sings it in such a way that you can't actually hear him saying denial. It sounds like he's saying la-di-da-da. And uh, when Tori Amos covered this song, she she pointed out that exact thing, that most people don't know that this song says denial, denial, denial. Um, anyway, I do love Tori Amos, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna play that one. I need the real one for this. This is um, my best song in the world today. It's a song that's all about denial. You don't need me to tell you what it is. It's really, it's just la-di-da-da, la-di-da-da. BPP best song in the world today, Nirvana Smells Like Teen Spirit, expressing the denial felt by Laura Conaway about the cancellation of this here show. Up tomorrow, it's anger, but a little more denial before anger.
reminded of something. Nirvana equals good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wouldn't you agree? It doesn't change. Yeah. You know what else equals good? It does not good? lose its What's power. That? Letting you choose the news. <sighs> Let the people's voice be heard on these airwaves and digital thingies that happen that let us be online. Technical term. Thank you. This is the most. All right, we're looking at the most emailed, most read, most everything stories from the interwebs. Is Mark in there? You have got no, no. He's got moonlighting. No, I I moonlight because I don't I can barely see you in that news booth. But but things are so strange in there. (laughs) I have my own place here. (laughs) Don't breathe on me. Now, are you waving me off of doing you first? No, no, no. I'm I'm waving you in. Are you waving me off of having you do your most first? No, ma'am. I I have things. I've written them down. All right, go for it. Uh, I got a most emailed at Seattle Times. This is about swinging seniors. They are the fastest group of online dating users. Fastest growing group of cohabitors, actually, too, because there's a lot of demographic, cultural factors, you know, if you get longer life expectancy, there's more time to date. Specifically, men are living longer because of better treatment for drugs, uh, better treatment of drugs for cancers that affect men. Obviously, Viagra means they can be of greater service to to women they no longer. And uh, what's interesting is they they, they, they would rather uh, you know basically shack up than remarry. And so, because re- remarriage rates are flat, because you know basically remarrying kind of complicated pension and, and health care, inheritance, all that stuff like that. So I think this is all great for senior happiness and for the world of engaging online. Something that's important to us. I just if you're listening and you have a, a senior that you love and you're encouraging them to get out there. Uh, just warn them to tread carefully if they wind up in Craigslist casual encounters because that, <laughs> that that might be taking the engagement a little too far. Is what I'm worried about that. Greater service? Yeah. Service? Viagra helps you fix door hinges and <laughs> put up pictures? Yeah, that's what he meant. That's what Monk's daughter that's yeah. the image I'm keeping in my head. Exactly. Oh, boy. <laughs> exactly. Mine is uh, from Yahoo Buzz. It's a breakout, and I thought it might be interesting to people in this room. It is the um, highest paying jobs in the United States, as <laughs> we all tell, go forward. Allison Stewart. <laughs> uh, it's interesting because they took out all the, they say this from the uh, U.S. Department of Labor's official list. Now, out of the top 20, about, I believe, 10 of them were medical jobs. Mm-hmm. It was a pediatrician, family doctor. So they, they kind of put them all in one one group, so to make room for the others. Uh, you could be a uh, the computer information systems manager, the IT guys. Yeah. They get it on, $100,000 a year. Oh, there you go. Nice. Air traffic controller, a little high stress, mm-hmm. as you can imagine. They say you need nine years of training time to get to six figures, but it's possible. They have one here, lawyer, if you want to do that. Airline pilot, another high stress job, but you can pull down $135,000 a year on average. An engineering manager and a natural sciences slow manager. Slow down, slow down. I'm writing these down. <laughs> Marketing manager. You know what? I've noticed out here five of these people are managers. Yeah. Manager, the magic word. And I, I also notice a lot of those require skills, <laughs> which I don't have. If there's any, if there's anything in there, sitting and talking about stuff, just how's that pay? Pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have any skill, and I got paid for it for a little while there. <laughs> for a little while. Yeah. Laura yeah. Silver. Okay. Well, I'm also talking about the yearn to earn, but it's U R N. And this story comes from the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. It's a most emailed, dying art form is alive and well. And this is actually about art making urns and stuff that people's ashes can be put in. Ah. How many puns did we go through there? There were like four puns. I can't be stopped. (laughs) (laughs) Candace Bushnell write this article? Close. All right. Anyway, you know, the Pacific Northwest, there are a lot of artisans there. Mm -hmm. They work in glass, ceramics. This one guy in a boutique death shop is commissioning them to make urns. Oh. So one, for example, 
an exhibitionist. Okay. How do you think he wants? What do you think he wants his urn to look like? Naked Clear. people. Clear, exactly. Oh, Made yeah. him a glass urn. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't write the story. Yeah. And um, whatever the next question is, my answer is also naked. <laughs> naked people. Well, na- <laughs> anyway, if there's good news because we're all gonna die, but doesn't have that to be so dismal. Yeah, thanks. No, no, but when you die, you can become an eternal reef, part of a coral reef. Laura, that doesn't really tree. brighten it up for me. Laura, I'm shutting you down the story. <laughs> yeah. You're shutting you down right now. <laughs> Shut down. Powering Matt, down the Laura you're Silver. Next. <laughs> <laughs> I have one of the most emailed at boston.com, uh, which is the Boston Globe. A intense storm left four people in critical condition in Dorchester, Massachusetts in the Boston area yesterday. Or Dorchester. Dorchester. Uh, the storm, <laughs> Maki Mox from Dorchester. Yes, Maki Mox from Dorchester. Uh, the storm arrived right in the middle of a very tense tide game of a local soccer league, the Dorchester Franklin Field. <laughs> and um, many spectators fled for shelter underneath, uh, obviously, you know, the safest place. An enormous tree. They went and stood under an enormous tree. Ten spectators were struck by lightning as they stood beneath the tree. All of them males. uh, I shouldn't laugh. I'm not laughing. That was, please, transcribers, strike the laughing from the record. Uh, The youngest victim was 13 years old. The oldest was in his 40s. And four are in critical condition. It's actually not so good. The EMS deputy supervisor on the scene said... Uh, they sought the quickest shelter, but unfortunately, lightning strikes the tallest object. Not the wisest shelter. And that was the tallest tree in the area. I've been on the job 27 years, and I've never had 10 people struck by lightning at once. Well, we send out well wishes to all the folks who yes. were in bad shape as a result of that. Ian, we're going to let you finish up the most. Okay, I have a most popular from Newsday. And actually, if I could swap out the music for this one, that'd be good. Does anyone not recognize this theme? Yeah. Okay. I don't. <laughs> uh, it's, the, it's the 90210. As you know, it's coming back. There's You're a probably new getting good grades somewhere. <laughs> no, I have an urn. I died. That part of me died. <laughs> yeah. uh, you really can't turn it off. The uh, Yeah, there's a new 90210 on the, on the CW. And, you know, uh, Jenny Garth, Kelly, is going to be on it. She's, it's like sort of the next generation. Sure. She's now the guidance counselor at Beverly Hills High. So, as we know, there was always some, uh, both in their characters and off screen, there was some sparring between Ginny and Shannon Doherty. Uh, can, Can we hear a little bit of that, actually? You know, Kelly, if you're trying to lose your bimbo image, I honestly don't think this will help. I am not a bimbo, okay? Whatever you say, Kelly. But I was always taught that if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck... Go to hell. <laughs> That's not exactly the way the phrase goes, but they were uh, they were fighting over Dylan there. Anyway, there was a big doubt whether or not Shannon Doherty would come back for the new 90210 on the same set with Jenny Garth. Has been confirmed. She w- They will be on set together. Who knows oh. what will happen? Brian Austin Green, they're still trying to yes. reach out to him. So we'll see. Reasons to live. Ian, thank you. You got it. It's a good way to end the show. Mm-hmm. On a high note, this has been the Bryant Park Project from NPR News. Thank you.